welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we'll take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sethi Kogan. AJC and the Times of Israel have a lot in common. We're both passionate about the future of Israel and the Jewish people. We both employ a lot of good writers. We both work in several different languages, and both organizations are led by someone named David H. This week, we're joined in studio by David Harris, CEO of AJC, and by phone by David Horowitz, founding editor of The Times of Israel. The two are both eloquent spokespeople for their organizations and for the Jewish people, and they both have incisive minds that enable them to easily explain the intricacies of our complex political and societal moment. Listen in on our chat to mark the very special launch of our new joint podcast, People of the Pod. David Harvitz, David Harris, thank you both so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Seth. Sure. This is the very first official episode. You know, we had kind of a soft launch last week of People of the Pod, but this is our formal start. And this was something that was so exciting to us as we were talking about it, you know, behind the scenes before we launched. David Horowitz, why is it that this partnership makes so much sense? Well, I think the idea of doing something that's very immediate, uh, you know, I work in text mode usually, there's you know, a few pictures, a little bit of video, but to be able to partner with an organization that has this framework going, to be able to reach people who care about the kind of work that we cover and to do so, you know, through conversation is new and exciting for us. David Harris, from AJC's perspective, why this partnership with this precocious news organization that came on the scene only about seven years ago, but has immediately become a must read? First of all, because um, we're big fans of the Times of Israel. I personally am a big fan. I've been a blogger for the Times of Israel for many years, and I have great respect for the publication. Uh, secondly, because um, I believe in Jewish partnerships. Uh, together, we can leverage um, our respective audiences and reach more people. And thirdly, uh, and perhaps obviously, this is the direction in which the world is going. So as much as uh, many of us have been text-driven, myself included, uh, audio is the way to go, and podcasts are here to stay. So we're thrilled to have this partnership together with the Times of Israel. David Harvitz, writing uh, just a few weeks ago in the pages of your publication, you cited some AJC stats. Uh, you were talking about our annual survey of American Jewish opinion, and you said, quote, many young American Jews in particular are less instinctively invested in Israel's well-being. They're becoming alienated from an Israel that they regard as less pluralistic and less democratic. Unless that trend was reversed, the next AJC survey will find even more American and Israeli Jews writing off those in the other country as not part of my family. What do you see as contributing to the growing divide in the Israel-Diaspora relationship from the Israeli side of the Atlantic? Yeah, well, first of all, that sounds really bleak. Um, I certainly <laughs> did write that. Um, you know, there are lots of positives to the relationship as well. Um, but, you know, there are factors at play here, one of which is simply that time has passed. And, you know, there are two sizable Jewish communities. That's the one in Israel. That's the one in the United States. Uh, people have had decades now, seven of them, uh, to make their choice about which of those communities, or most especially whether to come in and, and throw their lot in with the Jewish people in Zion. Uh, and, you know, by definition, you know, as the years go by, the communities are going to evolve in slightly different ways. 
But you also have, you know, you, you have, I think, in Israel, an abiding and maybe even growing sense that around the world, and certainly including parts of the Jewish community, there's not merely a failure to understand some of the challenges we're up against, but even a disinclination to look deeply at some of the challenges and some of the realities that we grapple with. And I think for Israelis and many in diaspora jury, you know, there is perpetual, and it wouldn't be normal otherwise, I suppose, perpetual dissatisfaction with some aspects uh, of, of the way the Jewish state is playing out, as there is dissatisfaction everywhere with, with everything at some level. But, you know, this country that has tried and to a large extent has managed to both uh, establish itself as a thriving first world democracy, but also to show fealty to the religion that sustained us in exile for millennia, um, nonetheless, the ultra-Orthodox maintain a kind of monopoly over life cycle events. And that, I think, is alienating for much of the diaspora and much of Israel, by the way, that doesn't subscribe to the ultra-Orthodox outlook. Um, there are other factors. You know, Israeli democracy is not perfect. Now, there, I think, uh, dissatisfaction in some cases is not merited. I think Israel's democracy is an incredible thing. I think it's being battered. I think it can't be taken for granted. Uh, but I think that some of the gulfs uh, should not be as wide as they are and that we should be smarter in trying to find ways to bridge some of those gulfs, to talk better, to have a nuanced dialogue. And maybe things like this podcast are part of that. David Harris, that stat that David Horowitz was citing in that quote that I read about American and Israeli Jews being part of the same family or not, that's from a question that we ask each year where we use that analogy as a, of a family and ask American Jews whether they feel like Israelis are their brothers and sisters, are their cousins, or not part of my family. We've been asking that for I don't know how long. You might know how long. Um, what can we do? What are we doing here at AJC to ensure that American and Israeli Jewish communities are not drifting further apart? I think, first of all, Sefi, in order to to do something, one has to understand the phenomenon. And I think David Horowitz, with whom uh, I should be noted by all your listeners, I share um, the same initials, DH. <laughs> uh, maybe there's cosmic meaning in that. We have to understand the issues, and they're not simple. And because they're not simple, they're not going to be easy to solve. Number one, we're drifting apart historically, geographically, uh, generationally. By now, we're probably second cousins in most cases, maybe even third cousins. And I don't know about other people's families, but in our family, second and third cousins weren't necessarily part of the core nuclear family. Moreover, American Jews, unlike many other diaspora Jewish communities with which I'm familiar, always saw a kind of American exceptionalism, whereas other communities always saw Israel as an essential part not just of their metaphysical self, but potentially of their physical selves as a potential alternative, a potential home, a potential haven. Most American Jews never saw Israel in quite those terms because they believed America was a kind of second promised land. Thirdly, and this is a very big issue as well, there's a kind of attenuation of Judaism for many in America. Uh, and for some, it's become a kind of Tikkun that's replaced Judaism in a way. Now, I know this is tricky stuff, and we don't have the time to get into it. But if Judaism becomes reduced to a very sort of simple notion that it's all about do-goodism, then Israel, as a sovereign state, uh, which is still battling for its borders, its protection, its security in a very rough and tumble area, has a rough time fitting into that notion of tikkun olamism. In other words, we get to a very deep issue about the difference between being a sovereign state and being a minority community. 
it's very easy in a minority community to spend Shabbat talking about prophetic Judaism, invoking all of the, the, the wonderful elements of Jewish heritage about which we're so proud, welcoming the stranger, pursuing justice, and the like. Israel wants to embrace that, but at the same time has to defend itself against Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, Iran, Iran and Iran, Iran and Syria, Iran and Lebanon. So there are different clashes because of statehood than there are because of minority status. All of these things come together and require deep analysis in order to try and find a pathway forward. One of the symptoms of this attenuation that you spoke about, David Harris, is that we're seeing a waning, uh, it might be cliche to speak about it at this point, but we're seeing a waning um, in the loss of bipartisan support for Israel here in the United States. Do you think that that's overplayed, overdone, cliched at this point, or is it something that is very real and, and that we're concerned about? I'll give you a very typical answer. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to me, at least, is that it's all the above. The American Jewish Committee is fiercely nonpartisan. Uh, we're also deeply committed to ensuring that there's bipartisan support for the U.S.-Israel relationship going forward, and not simply because it's in the interests of Israel, but because it's in the core interests of the United States. I think that to some degree, the dissent in the Democratic Party is being overplayed. Uh, in part, that's because the dissenters are very successful in social media. They have a very high visibility and decibel level. But at the same time, there are trends, and poll after poll after poll reveal those trends, that there is a growing gap between self-identified Republican support for Israel and self-identified Democratic support for Israel. So we shouldn't overreact to the current situation. Uh, bipartisan support for Israel, as reflected in vote after vote in Congress, is striking. On the other hand, we shouldn't underreact to the potential for erosion in that bipartisan support for Israel, especially today, um, as polls reveal within the Democratic Party. David Harvitz, what about from the Israeli side of the Atlantic looking at this issue? You know, I'll talk to cousins of mine either at their dinner table when I'm actually in Israel or, or from afar, and these are lifelong labor voters. Like, we're talking people in their 70s and 80s, the typical Ashkenazi elite labor voter who thinks of him or herself as a liberal and tells me, you know, Sefi, what are the Democrats doing to us? There's this total break. Is that something that's become pervasive in Israel? Look, I think there's a clear bipartisan collapse, right? There's a polarization, a disinclination to, to go into nuance, an intolerance for, for differing views. And the whole um, Israeli-American relationship and the partisan aspects of that relationship are victims of that. They're, you know, they're part of this polarizing of societies. You see it in the United States, you see it in Israel, you see it in Britain and beyond. There are very few bipartisan issues in the United States at the moment, and the political climate in Israel is also increasingly shrill and polarized. You can go into, you know, the specifics. From the Israeli perspective, there's a president in the United States who Israelis would not have chosen in the last elections, according to our polls, but who we also thought would be better for us than the one we would have voted for, according to the same polls. In other words, Israelis in the polls said they would have voted for Hillary Clinton, but they thought that Trump would be better for Israel. And you explain hmm. that contradiction by internalizing that Israelis felt they'd know where they would be with Clinton, and Trump you know, could well turn out to be excellent, but they couldn't be sure. Um, since becoming president, of course, you know, he went to the Western Wall as a serving president. Nobody had done that before. Uh, he recognized Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. He recognized Israeli sovereignty on the Golan. Um, he's facing down Iran, uh, although it's, you know, that particular 
process is still playing out. So a lot of the things that Trump has done are very close to the Israeli consensus, a part of the Israeli consensus, and he's appreciated for that. At the same time, you know, he's certainly using his relationship with Israel as a potential battering ram for his political opponents. Uh, some of those political opponents are beyond unfairly critical of Israel. Uh, and within Israel, the Israeli government, I think, has made it too easy uh, to allow itself to be perceived as uh, particularly close to one side of the spectrum. And that's just bad politics in the medium term, because unlike in Israel, where the pendulum has not swung for a decade, you know, the pendulum does swing in the United States. And Israel deserves to be supported across the spectrum in the United States, not only because of shared values, but also because of shared interests. We are the dependable democracy on the front line against an Iran that sees us as the little Satan and you as the big Satan. This relationship, this U.S.-Israel relationship, it has value in terms of the things we stand for, but it also has practical importance. And therefore, that support needs to be rock solid, whoever's in power in whichever of the two countries. Speaking of politics, it's election season. I think in 2019, it feels like it's always... I was going to say, <laughs> when, when is it not election season? It's always election season. <laughs> but here particularly, um, there might be a case to say that it's it's especially election season because Israel has elections coming up as we record today on September 3rd. Israel has elections coming up in precisely two weeks' time. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is threatening elections elections uh, coming up also very soon. And the American election actually isn't all that soon, but it's certainly looming. Um, One thing I'm wondering, I think a lot of people are wondering, is is there a common through line, right? Are our politics all moving in the same direction? Are there identifiable patterns that we can pick up on? Or as it sometimes feels, is everything just, you know, so chaotic and perhaps most unnervingly chaotic in different ways? David Harvitz, what do you say? Oh, good grief. You know, I think it's (laughs) rash to try and draw exact parallels. I think there are certainly some common factors. You know, the lack of moderation and the erosion of middle ground stances, I think, is common certainly to all three of the countries that that you mentioned. And that's really problematic because I think much wisdom is usually between the extremes. but you know there you know the, there are other factors playing out here. I mean, the, you know the capacity of leaders uh, and others, you know, opponents, uh, all players, to to misdirect, uh, to peddle misinformation, and in some cases disinformation, to escape scrutiny by a, an increasingly weak journalistic hierarchy. There are some, you know, many I think uh, similar factors playing out. We in Israel, as you said, we're two weeks away from elections. You actually wouldn't believe it. Uh, in other words, by comparison to previous election campaigns, you would not think that we were only two weeks away from a vote. And I think part of that is because the Israeli public really has not been persuaded that this was necessary. Um, you know, we had elections just five months ago. We made our characteristically complicated Israeli political views known. We then expected our elected leaders to sort out the potential coalition that we had entrusted them with forming, and they didn't do that. Uh, I don't know how it's going to play out here, but I think what you most sense in Israel is a disapproval with the politicians for putting us through this again when we, you know, we made our views clear and it was only four or five months ago. And David Harris, what do you say? I think where I particularly agree with David is on the um, sort of the vanishing center. And as a lifelong centrist representing a very fiercely centrist organization, the American Jewish Committee, Uh, That's particularly difficult uh, for me as I observe trends in in the United States in particular, but elsewhere as well, uh, a sense that uh, we have become deeply polarized societies with two warring camps, in effect, 
two sub-countries within a larger nation. And of course, living in an era of social media, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to social media. <laughs> I wish I weren't. I'd probably wake up in a better mood. But watching social media play out, watching the vitriol, watching the anger, watching the kind of stark conclusions drawn in 280 characters or less on Twitter or in an image on Instagram or wherever it may be, sort of removes all elements of nuance and context. They become dirty words. I mean, history has gone out the window. Um, lessons learned gone out the window. Uh, instead, it's all about the moment. And it's about politicians tapping the moment and tapping the kind of residual anger of many. And I think uh, if, if I could reduce it uh, from, from my vantage point, especially in the United States, I don't know whether David would agree in the UK, which he knows well, and, and Israel, you know, it used to be in the States, it's the economy stupid. I think we're now talking about two phenomena. Uh, it's the economy stupid and it's the culture stupid. Mm. Culture meaning, um, if you will, identity. Uh, it, it, it's much more complex than, than race alone or ethnicity alone. But it's this sort of complex mix of what does it mean today to be an American? What does it mean today to be a Brit? What does it mean today to be an Israeli? And it seems to me, at least, that we no longer have any kind of consensus, at least around, let's say, that 80 percent mark. Uh, leaving aside those on the margins in the past, we've lost that kind of center ground about not just the economy, but identity. And it becomes now a kind of a duel between the so-called elites and the anti-elites um, and uh, the haves and the have-nots and those who are the globalists and those who are, if you will, the nationalists. Again, this is simplifying all the phenomena, Sefi. But I think we have to begin to scratch below the surface to understand this if we're going to find a way out and restore a sense of consensus in democratic societies, which at the end of the day depend on consensus. David, is, is David right? Is the culture war becoming increasingly central in Israel, much as it is in the U.S.? Look, I wouldn't put everything in exactly the same terms that David did. And I would add another element that uh, I'm not saying is unique to Israel, but is incredibly prominent to Israel. Our, our divisions here and our, and our elections here, part of them do revolve around sort of tribal aspects, if you like. But part of it, which is you know, very prominent here, like I say, is the security issue. You know, the last elections and this one and maybe a, a good few in, in the recent past, were referenda to some extent on Netanyahu, but not simply Netanyahu as a person. Part of it is Netanyahu, the domestic leader, the internal leader, um, beloved by some, loathed by others, very divisive, and so on. But part of it, and, and I think really the key factor in Netanyahu's success for the past decade, has been they've been referenda on Netanyahu as the, as Mr. Security, as the person capable of keeping this country safe. In other words, what I'm saying is, apart from all the other issues that David mentioned, we have this imperative to you know to exist here. Uh, and if we have leadership that is not smart enough uh, in steering the security uh, hierarchies and ensuring that we are able to survive here, you know, all the other issues <laughs> become marginal. Um, what's striking about Netanyahu not losing in April, he didn't win, but he didn't lose, was that he was up against an opposition party led by a former chief of staff with two other chiefs of staff in its top ranks. And yet he, I would say, out-security them. Uh, he is, as I speak to you, as of today, I would say, and we've just had a major flare-up with Hezbollah, which is still being learned in a way. He's nonetheless been, for a decade, the most credible figure when it comes to keeping Israel safe. Uh, and that is part of the mix here. And that has pushed aside 
maybe some of the other phenomena that you're grappling with in the United States and that people are dealing with in Britain, for example. I want to start to wind us down here with a couple of final questions. David Harris, what keeps you up at night from your perch here at AJC? How much time do we have, sir? Well, you told us what wakes you up early in the morning, you know, the, to get on Twitter. So, you know, what, what about the other end of your sleep schedule? Uh, it, it's it's hard to encapsulate um, one thought in in a closing minute, <laughs> as you hint at the uh, at the wind up of of this podcast. But I think that I'm most concerned about, uh, on the one hand, the attenuation of Jewish identity in in too many parts of um, um, of the world, beginning here in the United States, and on the other hand, I'm I'm very worried that um, uh, 75 years after the end of the Shoah. Um, anti-Semitism is re-emerging in a variety of forms, both familiar uh, and, if you will, in a newer guise, uh, the individual Jew, the collective Jew, the Jew, and the Jewish state. And there are fewer breaks on expressions. Uh, Once upon a time, they were um, confined to more extreme places and spaces. Today, they're much more mainstreamed. Um, they, 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 instead of eliciting total anger and disapproval, they're now subjects of increasing discussion and debate. Um, and I worry. It, it's interesting that in this past week, as we record this podcast, we mark the 80th anniversary of the start of the Second World War. Uh, there are lessons to be learned from that war and from the run-up to the war from 1933 to 1939. But I fear, Sefi, that in the largely ahistorical world in which we live, Uh, Many of those lessons will never be learned because history is seen as a luxury to many, uh, if that. Uh, And that's profoundly concerning to me as a Jew. David Horowitz, seven hours earlier each night on Israel Standard Time, what's keeping you up? (laughs) Um, Look, let me ask the question in an effort to be constructive as opposed to dismal, which is how I often feel. Um, (laughs) Well, you're you're, you're British. You're you're supposed to feel that way, right? (laughs) I'm ex-British, I have to say. Uh, But yeah, Uh, look, you know, I think we do need to recognize from recent history that the Jewish people um, need somewhere where they can determine their own fate as best as a a little country on the western edge of a hostile landmass can. And I think we need to internalize that there's not that many of us around the world and that, uh, you know, in a podcast where we're bridging that geographical gap, we need to remember that we're all in this together. uh, and that the people who, who loathe us uh, don't care which side of political spectrums we're on, and that we need to find ways to engage each other and not give up on each other and show a little bit of more, more I guess, grace and temperance uh, uh, in the discussions that we have. You know, I tell people who are critical of Israel, well, you know, which Israel is it that you're critical of? I'm sure there are you know, lots of aspects of each other's countries that we would like to change for what we think would be the better. So, you know, invest in constructive efforts to make our two communities as as good and fine as we know how to, rather than becoming destructive and hypocritical and so on. So, you know, there's lots of stuff that keeps us up, but let's direct our energies to maximizing uh, what we can do constructively together. And one final positive note to end on. What are you most excited about, David Harvitz, about the future of journalism, about the future of your field? Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say about the future of the country and stuff like which I would talk about my kids and, and, their, and their peers because we're producing this, these extraordinary generations of young, innovative, capable, motivated people. I'm not uh, going to stop you from talking about your kids. If you want to talk about your kids, you can talk about your kids. Go ahead. 
David, you can talk about your grandkids. I want equal time to talk about my grandchildren. Uh, the future of journalism, I, you know, it's easier to be less optimistic about. But I, you know, I'd like to think that those channels and outlets that strive to cover things fairly and that strive to give people the tools to make their own decisions and, and that give expression to, to diverse viewpoints um, reasonably argued, uh, I hope that those uh, outfits, and I hope the Times of Israel is one of them, uh, can continue to thrive. And, and the signs are faintly encouraging, shall we say. And David Harris, with the last word, you can speak uh, fair is fair. You can speak either about the future of your grandchildren or about the future of advocacy. Well, actually, they're intertwined. Ah, very good. <laughs> because my grandchildren are, are Jewish and my grandchildren are Israeli citizens. Uh, and so it, it all fits together, Sefi, very neatly. This is unplanned, but, uh, <laughs> but there it is. So the future of my grandchildren and the future of Jewish advocacy are, for me, one and the same. But I will say that if I can just turn the question a little bit, what, what, what gives me the greatest sense of satisfaction in my advocacy? And I've been involved uh, in AJC advocacy now around the world for decades. I think the most extraordinary thing that has happened, and I, I hope and trust that David Horvitz will agree, is the emergence of Israel as a remarkably strong, resilient, uh, successful state. That doesn't mean it doesn't have both domestic issues and external challenges and threats. It has both. But I think if we step back and sort of witness the trajectory of Israel over the decades, and I've seen it up close in AJC advocacy on every continent in well over 100 countries, today Israel is seen by more and more countries, indeed I would say a vast majority of countries, as an essential part of the 21st century landscape and as an essential part of the solutions to the 21st century problems, whether it's about water, whether it's about food, whether it's about medicine, whether it's about cybersecurity, whether it's about terrorism or defense, go down the long list of 21st century challenges. Once upon a time, Israel was seen as as just a, a conflict, so nothing more, nothing less. You picked sides. And too often the countries we met with picked the other side out of political expediency or energy diplomacy. Today, they're no longer picking sides in quite the same way because they understand that to pick against Israel is to pick against their own 21st century interests. This is the biggest change in our advocacy, and this is what I hope will propel Israel forward in the years to come as it faces its external challenges, its domestic challenges, but at the same time continues to become an increasing global powerhouse and one that I think my grandchildren as Israelis will identify with very profoundly. Well, David and David, thank you both for your time and thank you both for your leadership of these two indispensable organizations that we love so much. Thank you, Zephi. Thanks, Zephi. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Judo. Good for the Jews? Look, you don't get the name People of the Book because of your fighting prowess. But a major theme of the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty in our ancestral homeland has been the new Jew, the strong Jew, the Jewish army. That theme can be a complicated one at times. And at times, it's really, really simple. At times, it just means cheering for the new judo world champion, Israeli Sagi Muki. 
but Sagi earned an unexpected fan this week. In keeping with the long-standing anti-Semitism of the Iranian regime, Iranian judoka Saeed Molai was forced to throw a match at the World Championships in Tokyo to avoid facing off against Sagi. But that was a bridge too far for Saeed, who defected after the competition and is now seeking asylum in Berlin. Was he just peeved that his country made him waste a chance at the championship to avoid an Israeli? Actually, it could have been something more. The Iranian Saeed left a simple comment on Sagi's Instagram page saying, Congratulations, champion. To which Sagi replied, Thank you. You are an inspiration as a human being and as an athlete. A few simple words and a couple of emoji exchanged on Instagram and the world gets a powerful reminder that the Iranian and Israeli people don't actually hate each other. If Iran's regime ever stopped its hateful assault on Israel, Iranians and Israelis could quickly resume warm ties. That would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes or Google Play. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.